0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki.
1: It's such a allegory for life, being in a band and being in any kind of relationship, especially one like this that's quite unique. I don't think a lot of people, unless they're polyamorous beings that particularly like being married to three other people, it's not something that you necessarily really experience this kind of four-way marriage. Bye. My name is Stella Mozgawa. I played drums in a band called War Paint. Bye. And we have a new album called Radiate Like This, which comes out May 6th on Virgin Music.
0: Of Warpaint, as a band with four women, is enticing, isn't it? Just the image that conjures up in my mind is potent. This idea that women can go into battle in the landscape that is the music industry and beyond, and they can play by their own rules. From the beginning, Warpaint was singular. Emily Coquel and Teresa Wayman were teenagers in Oregon when they picked up instruments and started to write songs. A decade later, they were summoned by actor and drummer Shannon Sossamon to start a band in Los Angeles with her sister, Jenny Lee Lindbergh. After their EP, Exquisite Corpse garners Some Buzz, Shannon departs to concentrate on her acting career. The search then begins for a new drummer. They try out a few, all good and all men. Until Australian Stella Musgawa comes along and everything slips into place. Warpaint have been making music for almost 20 years now, and their latest, Radiate Like This, is, I think, some of their best songwriting yet. Stella opens up about the challenges she felt working on the album as she rode out the pandemic back in Australia. But before we discuss that, Stella takes us back to her childhood in Australia, a happy one despite a bumpy start. I understand you grew up in Sydney. Yep, I grew up close to Manly Beach. So you have a very interesting childhood, right? Because I understand your parents relocated there. They moved in the early 80s. So I think 1981, they relocated from
1: Poland to Sydney, Australia. And then I was born in 1986. When I was four, we lived in Poland for a year. And that's where I went to preschool.
0: Ah, Mm -hmm. growing up, you spoke Polish.
1: Correct. Yeah, Polish was probably my first language and the one that I kind of felt socialized in because that was my first school experience, my first proper social experience outside of the home. I got really used to it and I really enjoyed it. And I liked my personality as a Polish speaking child. And uh, (laughs) then it was quite jarring moving back to Australia and starting kindergarten because I just felt like I couldn't express myself in the same kind of way. I didn't have that experience as an English-speaking child.
0: When you say you Mm -hmm. liked your personality as a Polish person, I mean, even as a child of that age, you know, what was it about it that felt like home?
1: I remember making friends really easily, enjoying communicating with other kids and making friends with other kids at that age, and I started quite early reading books, so I was always the narrator in the school plays. Mm. That builds a lot of confidence at that age, I think. And You know, it's a vague memory, but it's a really happy memory, and then I remember the the anxiety of moving to Australia, and, I mean, it's just culturally different as well. All of my family are Polish, so my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, you get into a groove, I think, especially at that age, that's when you, you start to have a social Experience as a human, it's less just about just your parents, and and you start to make friends and things like that. So, yeah. I just remember feeling quite quite strange and anxious and a little bit lonely when I first started school in Australia.
0: Once you were back in Australia, what was like a perfect day like for you in the Northern Beaches?
1: My family are very social. My parents are very social. We always had a lot of friends around, and also they were playing music for a living at the time. They were professional musicians in Poland and then they continued that work for several years when they moved to Australia. I remember they had a gig at a restaurant called Pappy's, and it was a seafood restaurant in Sydney. That was kind of their job and they went to work. So I remember being kind of palmed off to other family friends and being socialized in that way, which I think was really good for me, especially as an only child, to not have that completely sheltered experience of one domestic space and a small group of people and no siblings. I feel like I had 10 or 15 siblings growing up. That really helped me to kind of
0: come out of my shell. Yeah. So you enjoyed just slipping into the groove of whatever their family rhythms were?
1: Definitely. Just driving around with other families and listening to the music that they enjoyed on the cassette deck in the car and listening to a lot of ABBA. I just remember ABBA. ABBA was <laughs> such a thing growing up, and I think it was for a lot of Australian kids. As as severely Swedish as that band is, they were so embraced by Australia and Australian culture. We all metabolised ABBAs as, as children. It was kind of such a perfect complimentary soundtrack to sunny weather and being on the beach and barbecues, just that kind of youthful joy.
0: I grew up in uh, Singapore and ABBA was big, Mm -hmm. but also I went to university in Australia.
1: Yeah, you have a very... I was going to ask about your accent because it's quite Australian.
0: It's kind of all over the place, Uh, but also there's Muriel's Wedding, which is like that whole ABBA soundtrack that makes so much sense. And Priscilla. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, it's a big thing.
0: What is something that you think about? Like, we're very in the present right now. If you can just take a second to think back of something in your childhood that really brings you joy.
1: I vividly remember going to Year 7 camp. So it was the beginning of high school. I'd been learning how to play drums for a year at that point and I was very obsessed with Hanson. So I used to play that whole first Hanson record on pillows on my parents' couch and, you know, pots and pans, the classic tale. And when I got home from camp, which was also a really fun experience, it was kind of the first year of high school, a lot of new friends, a lot of friends from primary school that I had known. And I just remember coming home and it was my birthday around that time. I remember my dad buying me my first drum kit and that feeling of walking in to the room. And I think someone had spoiled the surprise for me. I kind of already knew, but it was still... Such a thrill and it was just the most exciting day of my life at that point. It was like I just got exactly what I wanted, you know, and now I get to just play the drums as often as I want. And I remember the first time I sat at a drum kit, maybe seven or eight, and it was at a family friend's house. I just remember sitting there and just feeling like I was inside of a spaceship and I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing I can imagine with with my small Child brain. From that moment, I was just kind of addicted to that sensation of sitting on the drum stool and being surrounded by all these things.
0: Is it true that you started learning drums because essentially a boy at school told you you couldn't?
1: That's one of the reasons, <laughs> yeah. So it was a combination of seeing the video clip for Mbop Yeah. <laughs> right when I'd started to learn how to play the drums before I got my first drum kit mm. and watching, it's so funny saying Mbop, but... Um, <laughs> There's no other way because no. that's the name of the song. <laughs> but video clip at a young age yeah. and thinking, oh, my God, there's another young girl playing the <laughs> drums and she's so good. That was my genuine thought. And so I was just like, well, if you see it, you can be it. Exactly. Genuinely, I felt represented and I felt, I mean, like it sounds like it's a joke, but it's not. I genuinely was like very excited and felt very seen in that moment and thought anything's possible this 13-year-old or 12-year-old girl is topping the charts, you know. So
0: Yeah, when did you find out it was a boy? <laughs> I don't even remember. And at that
1: point I was like, I don't even care. It's that experience, that moment of being like, oh my god, it's possible. It's music and success in music is not reserved for stuffy adults. It's a it's a teenager thing as well. I guess it's the feeling of a lot of people had in the late 70s and 80s of watching punk and new wave where it was like, you don't have to be this virtuoso. You don't have to go through these traditional hoops to play in a band or to play music for a living. And I think that was maybe my punk rock moment. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it is possible, you know. (laughs)
0: So the the boy not letting you play.
1: In, In primary school, there was this kid and he was quite possessive. I just wanted to sit down and play for a second, you know. And he was like, no, obviously you can't. And I said, well, later in life, I will. <laughs> and I did. And here we are. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. I wanted to thank you. I was um, listening to a podcast that you had done. You mentioned can and mm. I went down that rabbit hole for a little bit. Right. Reading and learning about Damo Suzuki and all the rest of that. Amazing, and right? And it just blew my mind. I was oh, wow. Like,
1: Totally. I remember the first time I discovered them as well. It was really exciting. I think a lot of people have that experience with can, especially. You're in the can, can.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there something about your childhood that when you think about it makes you sad?
1: I think probably my first experience with death when my grandfather died because he'd lived with us throughout my childhood Mm. and granddad had pretty severe dementia so what's really touching at this age is that we're a family that relies very heavily on humor to kind of heal and to remember and Mm. some of the stranger things that he did in that state as heartbreaking as it was I know for my my father especially whose father that was but also just just for the family in general, it's a very trying time and very heartbreaking time, especially when they do pass or when you feel like they're experiencing pain or experiencing anguish in some way at that point in their life. But we always, you know, retell the stories of, we kind of keep his memory alive in that way, you know, and it's it's a way of transforming grief. We had a German shepherd and he'd oftentimes just walk in a circle in the backyard and the dog would follow him around and then he'd come to the back door into the kitchen where my mom was. He'd walk in the door and say, oh, you live here? And she said, yeah, we live here. You live here too. And he goes, oh, that's so strange. This beautiful dog just brought me to the house and I didn't know you guys were here, you know. But, yeah, it was quite sad for the family when he died and obviously just that first experience of someone that you're so used to having around and that you've developed a bond with since you were a kid and all of a sudden is gone and seeing your family go through that. How old were you? I was 11. I just remember around that time having very vivid dreams and very vivid nightmares. Mm. And a lot of them were attached to him dying or understanding that he was going to die, you know, pretty big when you're a kid.
0: When did you sort of first... I think, wow, music is transcendent, you know, it can really take you somewhere.
1: I think I always really loved and kind of envied my parents' experience of, I remember my dad having a little MIDI studio in the spare room of our house and just remembering how exciting it was, just looking at all these cables and what are these weird sounds that are happening? What are these machines, you know? Looking back now, I had such a real connection to those instruments simultaneously with acoustic instruments, seeing my dad play the bass guitar or watching my mum sing or having people coming over for band practice with my parents. and mm.
0: Because your mum was a bit of a pop star, wasn't she? She
1: was a pop star in Poland, yeah. She was in a group called Prokontra, which was like a four-member, strangely, um, all-girl vocal group. Wow. Yeah, she kind of was no stranger to the world of music and she experienced a lot of that when she was quite young, so being on TV and doing festivals and you know, that being her profession and and dad was the same. He just kind of knew when he was young that that's what he had a gift for.
0: You were talking about being in your dad's studio with all your, yeah.
1: Yeah, I kind of remember being always really excited by that, feeling like this very special place and feeling very different to most people's homes our world was so much about listening to music and dad building speakers later in life this venn diagram i guess of being a, a lover of music and a consumer of music as well as playing the music and contributing to that world and having this kind of two-way relationship with music and the other one i guess was i just remember listening to a lot of music with my dad in the car and feeling a real connection to bands like Steely Dan. And he had a vinyl of Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell's Hegira because dad loved Jaco Pastorius, and that was kind of his guy. So we listened to a lot of that. As I grew older, I felt like I had this spiritual or a divine kind of connection to music and especially playing music is one thing, but also just quite genuinely just listening.
0: You did go to university, but you didn't go to like a music college?
1: Correct, yeah. I went to the University of Sydney for two years Mm -hmm. and then after that I took a year off to kind of focus on music and that
0: was the year that I ended up moving to America to play in a band. After a couple of years of playing in a rock band in New York City, Stella was considering relocating to LA when she got a call from home. It was an old friend from respected Australian anti-pop punk band Regurgitator.
1: Before I moved to America, I was playing in a band with Ben Eli, the bass player and singer in in Regurgitator. Ben asked if I was available to do a Regurgitator tour supporting Devo in Australia because their drummer Pete was just about to have a baby. So I filled in for Pete. Still to this day, one of the greatest tours I've ever done was pure joy.
0: After that tour ended, Stella returned to the U.S. and began her Californian adventure. She worked as a drummer for hire there and came across Warpaint in the lively L.A. music scene. As drummer Shannon had left to pursue her acting career, Stella, who now had a reputation as a technically skilled rock drummer, was eventually asked to join the band. What was it like kind of uh, being accepted into this band that you had seen performing. You knew what music they were playing in, kind of. You liked them as a band already. Yeah. But also, like Emily and Theresa, known each other since they were 11 and way incredibly close. What was it like for you to be in the band and for them to be kind of so accepting mm. of you? Because like so much of what they say was like, you know, like Stella was the unicorn <laughs> who kind of, you know, changed everything for the band. And like you were the fifth drummer yeah. and then had a series of men in the band. And Shannon, who was the original drummer. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think it was just one of those situations, like a good relationship where you've kind of looking for that person in a way. And and even if you haven't met that person yet, you still kind of know what it is that is going to work for you in your situation. And I think that's that extends to bands as well. They were looking for someone who had a level of experience, who had a level of enthusiasm about being in a band and kind of entering into that exciting, sometimes risky situation.
0: At that point, Warpaint had self-released their 2010 debut EP, Exquisite Corpse. Recorded before Shannon's departure, the EP was well received by critics and created a buzz around them. Soon they were performing as a trio, and the following year they were signed to Rough Trade, who re released that EP. When Stella joined the band as a crucial fourth member, they were deep in the process of recording their debut. <laughs> I understand by the time you joined them, like some of the songs were already written, right? What was that like to now be in this group where it's kind of like a democracy as opposed to being like session musicians and like people would say to you, like, you know, show us what you've got, but they weren't really interested in what (laughs) you have, right? And then all of a sudden you're in war paint. Did you automatically notice that, oh, these women are really interested in what I have to say and what I'm bringing to the project?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I was craving an experience like that of being creatively involved. And I kind of always knew my place and I still feel like I know my place in bands where I'm I'm just there to play the drums or I'm just there to play an instrument or I have a particular technical role in that environment. I never really tried to push my ideas or push my songs onto people. And I'm still not a conventional songwriter in Warpaint, even though I've like I wrote one song that was on the self-titled record that Emily ended up singing, but it's not really where I feel like I contribute best to the band. And so I I just felt like the things that they needed, I could provide. Mm. That's a very clinical (laughs) answer to a very, you know, an emotional question, I guess, but It was just more about ideas and ways to approach something or or instruments to play, and I like playing multiple instruments. There's a song on the full that Teresa plays drums on and I play guitar, and that was just not a strange thing in this environment, and I, I liked that kind of freedom and that openness of whatever serves the song and whatever feels best in the moment as opposed to this is my rigid role in the band and this is your rigid role in the band and never the twain shall meet. With all the songs on The Fool, we just jammed them out. So they had rough ideas of what they were when I came to the band and we started playing together before we recorded and we played through all the songs and we kind of arranged them together. So some mm-hmm. were further along mm-hmm. than others, but with Undertow... I mean, it wasn't like this is the beat that the other drummer played, just play this beat. It was very much we were kind of hmm. coming up with those parts together and and thus kind of um, arranging the song together in a way. And I felt like that was where I contributed most on that record and also playing a lot of different things or kind of having a million ideas of how to approach recording things and having a lot of fun working with Tom Biller, who is our engineer and producer. I think that was kind of where I fit in. So it wasn't necessarily about coming in and like, oh, I'm not sure about that line. (laughs) Um, Or maybe you could sing a third harmony or something like that. (laughs) I came in and through playing it all together and playing those songs together, they kind of solidified as these final arrangements that then we took into the studio and then even more creativity happened there.
0: The Fool was a critical success for the band, so their self-titled follow-up was highly anticipated. Critics felt that the album didn't deliver on their promise, though column inches and reviews were also focused on who band members were dating at the time or how esteemed their male producers and collaborators were. Elsewhere on the internet, still others argued about whether the women were proficient enough on their instruments. In truth, they were continuing to experiment. They were hesitant to stay in any one lane. They tapped into their love for hip-hop, though what emerged are songs with a hazy jam band quality but it also brought surprising results in the bass-heavy dance groove of a song like discovery I saw an interview where Jenny said each of you wrote each verse and then it was just about being playful and not like too much in your head about it and then there's even that line I make room for everyone there's just such a sense of play and commune between the four of you with that mm. song did you contribute to lyrics uh, I know you sing on it
1: Yeah, we all sing on it. I didn't contribute to lyrics on that Mm -hmm. one, no. If someone asked me a question like, what do you think about this line, I would give my opinion. It's not with every song Mm -hmm. and it's not, again, where my strength Mm -hmm. lies in the band, you know. That was more of, Mm -hmm. like, choosing sounds and choosing how to play it and when we wrote it together in Joshua Tree, when we rented this house for a month, I was engineering the demos that we were making. So I was making a lot of those kind of choices early on and helping us arrange that song and kind of get it together and focusing more on the sonics and the arrangement rather than the lyrical content or anything like that
0: yeah i know i love that song it's one, mm. one of my favorite kind of all-time well songs awesome me too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah definitely. i really like the fact that you can dance to it it's got a clubby aspect to it yeah from one album to the next and even like your most recent one there is always kind of like a mix of moods and vibe I think that's going on definitely but like something like new song from Heads Up it's Mm -hmm. almost poppy Do you do you guys ever like shy away from pop impulses? Because I also it hasn't it's funny you say abba because I put it down as that has an Mm -hmm. abba edge to it or something from the eastern block or maybe it's just something nostalgic you yeah know? Right. and I, I don't know you tell me what the magic was but I also is mm. like it has that LFO quality about it the program drums that oh cool. bell kind of thing Great. or even like Bananarama you're a new- yeah 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 <laughs> I love that wow that's
1: really cool yeah, I don't think we ever sh- really shy away from it. I think it's just about whether it's if it's genuine and it's a genuine sentiment and we can resonate with it in some way, especially the girls who are singing it. If they are resonating with the content of the song and the, and the message of the song, then I think there's no use shying away from it because we love pop music and we love all kinds of music. I think as a band, collectively, we are thrilled to be able to contribute in some way. even if it's a tiny little slice of a contribution Mm. to the genres that we love and the music that we love and being a part of the musical world is such a gift and such an honour. And we've never really been a band that, I mean, people say like dream pop or witch pop (laughs) or any kind of like (laughs) multi-hyphenated genre nonsense, but we don't really have a genre and I think we're really lucky that we don't. In some way it drives us insane because we don't have this kind of focal point of like, okay, we're we're just a punk band and we this is what everyone plays and that's the end of the story. Mm. We've never really settled on anything. It's just what comes out when the four of us play music or when one of us writes a song and the other three contribute to it. That's always just been the rule. So, yeah, I think shying away from it is just like shooting yourself in the foot. I think it's just one part of your expression as a musician and as a band and as the individual that writes the lyric and to stifle that or to censor that just feels like it would be unfortunate.
0: I think it was Emily that said war pain is like a democracy for dictators.
1: Correct you there because it was actually Flood, our producer for the second Ah. record, that coined that term and we have hijacked it. But yes, sorry, sorry, go (laughs) on.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah so it's wonderful because you all have equal say yeah. but also i think therisa's told me like it's slow also you know and sometimes frustrating and like i think Theresa, when i was doing an interview for her own solo um album said you know it's like we're women we have our periods we get emotional all those things totally. are also in there so like when she stepped away and did her own thing it was like oh it's nice to like be in this other world again but at the same time it's like how lovely is it as woman to not have to like mm. minimize what yes. you're going through and like your emotions and all the rest of that. Has that changed for you guys then or you just now have like a shorthand about how as women working together you work? Mm.
1: I wish we had more of one to be honest, but the pandemic has slowed the progress of our relationship down significantly. And I think we would all acknowledge that not having physical proximity and not being in the same place at the same time making decisions about the album and rehearsing for the tour which we've just started yeah I guess the emotional preparation of being together again and slotting back into our roles in some kind of new and more comfortable way perhaps we we lost that experience and I and you know That was a loss for us, I think, the same way that, you know, people suffered true Mm. physical and emotional and financial loss over the pandemic. Looking back, that was something that was, that connection, I think, was obviously tarnished by not being in the same place for so long. I mean, I didn't see Emily or Jen for two years, two whole years after being Mm. in each other's pockets for almost 12 years straight, you know, and it's mm. a different way of communicating and it's not the way that of communicating that we're necessarily good at. So resorting mm. to that or having to lean on that remote communication versus the connection that we have and the communication that we've developed when we're with one another in person, it's just so, it's so different. So, so I think we're just ramping back up and trying to find our shorthand again. If I'm honest, it's like, Yeah, we we lost a lot of that and there's a lot of thinking you do when you're on your own or when you're away from the band and that can be really positive on an individual level but it can also change so much about the collective experience of being together. So any kind of challenges that we've had in the band, there's regardless of how difficult it gets, we're always honest about it. Nobody hides their feelings unless they find it crucial to do so and I think that's a really, really important Mm quality that we have as a band and as friends is that we we do try and make it better and we do try and communicate even if it's painful in the moment it helps things to not grow into some kind of malicious other being you know mm. so i'm really thankful for that but we're just getting started back up
0: over the years they've each also taken time out for solo and side projects allowing them to flex different creative muscles to that end, Stella's produced for Courtney Barnett, worked with Kurt Vile, and now has a new electronic project called Belief. Warpaint's latest album also came amidst rumours of a breakup. But radiate like this is more than just a return to form. It's some of their best work yet. There's a clarity to the whole effort, from the sonics to lyrics, and an overarching theme of solidarity with women that resonates with the moment we find ourselves in now. Theresa also spoke to me about how there was a real commitment to that clarity of vision from the band that had come from being older and more settled in their private lives and relationships. But the fact that so many of the songs, like Champion, Sand Stevie and Melting, sound like the work of a band comfortable in their own skin, belies some of the real struggles they faced working through the pandemic. Even the band's golden rule of always being honest and saying how they felt would come under strain. Was there like any moment there where you're like, ah, you know, this would be so easy if I was just in the room and I could tell you that doesn't work because I'm just there and then I can give you a hug and say, it's okay, but it doesn't work. Totally.
1: It's so hard, even over FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, to kind of have to communicate a warmth to someone and communicate an understanding with someone and what they're going through. Over text, it just doesn't have the same bite doesn't have the same power you know and and it can't soothe you the way that it also I mean there's just so much that we say with our faces and our body language and that's just an obvious thing to say but it's true in this situation is that I think I held myself back and I'm sure all of us held ourselves back from saying certain things that we would have said if we were physically with one another in the studio and so yeah that was that was a real challenging Mm. experience as well because where M&T were kind of making up for lost time and doing a lot of the, their work remotely, unfortunately, Jen and I had done the bulk of our, the work that we had to be physically present for. So it felt sometimes, and I know a lot of people in bands probably feel this way, sometimes there's just too many cooks and you remove yourself because you think that that's the solution. Mm. Even though I have an opinion about this one thing, I'm not going to contribute to any more noise and opinions that will divert the process of finishing the song so I think that happened a lot with all of us of just letting go which is probably a good exercise in some ways but also you know a really challenging one Mm. and not something that we're necessarily used to doing with one another when making a record
0: then it makes me think what was the secret sauce that made this album the way it is because it is such a, a strong album for so many other reasons is it the fact mm-hmm. that you were off the grid and you know you had the time to then work on things like you didn't have the advantage of being in the room with each other anymore mm-hmm. but you then had time to like go away and try and yeah spend more time that maybe in the old days you wouldn't be because you'd be like, okay, no, the record label wants it in three weeks. So by hook or by crook, Absolutely. that's going to be done. Whereas now you're like, I can't say what I want to say, but now I've got to go and work this drum Get part. And so yeah. as frustrating as it is.
1: To answer your question in terms of, I think, Emily and Teresa's experience, I think that extra time was probably very infuriating in some ways because it was so lonely mm. but also probably what contributed to kind of the rich sonic quality of especially the vocals on the record and, and being able to spend more time with those elements and really dig into them and provide them with the time and the energy and the love mm. that they often don't get in a studio environment because you got to get it done, you know, get the double, get the harmonies, someone else come in and sing and then you're done. I think it was probably a silver lining for them to have that extra time without a specific deadline or deadlines that continued to just be stretched throughout the recording process. Yeah, I think you can hear that. You can hear that quality. That's definitely a plus in this
0: scenario. Still hello. Really miss the easy intimacy of being in the same room as her bandmates or even the same time zone. Send Nudes, the final track on the album, has a bare bones quality to it, yet it didn't make the process as easy as it should have been.
1: Send Nudes was built up later in the process, so I did end up recording those drums in Melbourne. Mm. I started renting a studio so I could get certain things done for different projects and for production work. And, yeah, it took a while with Send Nudes. I thought it was pretty simple, but it was there were a few notes going back and forth, and, and that could just be challenging again because you're getting notes on emails and you can't just sit there with someone and do a take and then say, that's great, that's perfect, or try this next one like this and we'll edit it and blah, blah, blah. So I think just like the logistical uh, challenges of, of sending files across the world and mm. and making sure you have the right sounds and stuff.
0: The final result is a song that starts out with the guitar and a whisper, then meanders to another world with futuristic wizard-like synths. It's a good way to end the album as it really takes you somewhere. But it's the opening track of this album that presented Stella with a much bigger, more emotional challenge. Ironically, it's also the track that speaks most acutely to the themes of unity and womanhood.
1: Champion, I remember we had most of that song, like this, like I would say 75% of the song done before Sam mm. became involved in yeah. the record. So that was something that we had done. We'd done the drums and a lot of the bass and some of the guitar in my studio in Joshua Tree when we first started writing the record together. The gist of it was there. And the rough structure was there, but we always felt like even when Sam came in, he was like, there's somewhere Mm. that it should go and it's missing that place to go. So we struggled for a long time substituting things here and there Mm. to feel out what what that extra lift could be. So I remember I... um, had borrowed some great synths from a family friend, a guy that actually collects some amazing vintage gear that used to play with my dad and who ended up being my piano teacher over the (laughs) pandemic because I took piano lessons for my own sanity and musical development. And because I had the time, (laughs) Peter Rundle is his name. He's a great guy. He had an MS-20, which I also have in my studio in in the States. A lot of sense that I kind of missed that I obviously didn't have the opportunity or, you know, wherewithal or foresight to bring with me from America to Australia because I didn't expect to be coming back at that point. So I was exploring a lot of things with the Korg MS-20. And I also had an MPC-1000, which shout out to Rob Laxo, who plays with Kurt Vile, who I've played with a lot on mm. Kurt's music and who's a friend of mine. And I was looking for a very specific MPC, mm. the MPC-1000, which I'm used to using, and he mm-hmm. sent that to me from America early in the pandemic. So I kind of had those two pieces of gear that I, I felt like that was a really good limitation and a way to add a little bit of techno to the record and... <laughs> And I remember I did. I just threw a lot of things. I threw the kitchen sink at that song to try and get things to, to stick. And I kind of, I thought I was adding something quite interesting to it. And some of that was actually is still in the track in that second half of Champion. Emily and Teresa really loving it yeah and they felt really attached and Sam and Jen did not and so that was really hard and that was kind of to be honest quite heartbreaking for me because Mm. I thought I'd put so much energy and love into this thing and I thought I'd kind of solved our problem Mm. and it was just a hard no from one half of the committee (laughs) (laughs) and the general consensus from that side was that it felt like a remix of the song, which was not my intention at all. Like if I had remixed it, I would have remixed it completely differently. Mm. But I was just trying to add that was kind of my vision and it felt like it was swatted away in this way that that I think in the moment if you're physically with people in a studio, you can have a conversation about it. But when it's an email or a text or something, it just feels like really um, harsh. <laughs> And, and and ill-considered because people don't know that you, how much. They haven't sat with you in the studio or been there with you while you toil over this idea and try a million things and then finally arrange things and start editing things. It was hours and hours of work over several days to get to that idea. And then when I sent it, it was like Emily and Teresa were so excited. They were like, great, level unlocked. This is so exciting. We're totally with you. And Jen and Sam, not to throw them under the bus, this is just the reality of remote production and remote recording, were just not connecting with that idea at all. Yeah. And it just felt like, oh, we can't even have, like, a, a human conversation about this. It's just no. And it's just a vote. And, yeah, I think that kind of broke my heart a little bit, to be honest, if I'm being totally honest. I think at that moment I thought, well, I'm if that's the reaction and that's the way forward with ideas being contributed to this, then, then it's just like it's just too much work.:
0: Did you take a step back a little bit after that? Definitely.
1: I also convinced myself that that was the best thing to do, given the fact that, that Emily and, and Teresa had to have their experience of contributing to the record and feeling connected to the record at that point. Mm. their like solo time with it. Even constructive criticism at that point can muddy the waters quite a bit. So i it was kind of that experience which was painful, and then the translating that or transforming that into some kind of reason for for stepping back,
0: you know mm-hmm. it's so interesting yeah. everything you've just said. Mm-hmm. What have you kind of learned about yourself about being part of war pain? Mm-hmm. you know, like how like how have they mm-hmm. helped you be more kind of confident? in how you've navigated not just your career in war pain, but the rest of your career mm. as well. Mm-hmm. There's this push mm-hmm. and pull, like when to give and when to take and when to sit with, yeah. like, you know, something that doesn't feel nice.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's such a allegory for life, being in a band and being in any kind of relationship, especially one like this that's quite unique. I don't think a lot of people, unless they're, you know, polyamorous beings that particularly like being married to three other people it's not something that you necessarily really experience this kind of four-way marriage and creative partnership I think it's just another way to understand the human experience and to understand other people and to build compassion for yourself for other people to set boundaries all the normal kind of that the generic therapy speak is relevant when it comes to (laughs) explaining the experience of being in a band and what you can learn from it. I think it's just such a pressure cooker environment that you either sink or you swim, and it's really satisfying to swim in those moments and to realise what's the right thing to do, and I think also being the kind of ersatz engineer in certain situations has also really helped me develop as an engineer and as a producer and bringing Mm. that skill to other projects has been really satisfying to me. And I don't know if I would have actually, I I can't tell whether I would have just naturally gravitated towards that if I didn't do that in the band and I didn't just out of necessity of, okay, Mm. I've got the computer and I can run Logic or Pro Tools and just kind of at least have this record of us jamming together together that's kind of where it started and then over time it's been just like, you know, you run out of resources or someone can't engineer something or people have to come into my studio or whatever it is, you know, we've all had that experience individually with our Mm. studios now. Home recording environments is that sometimes it's just like a necessity. I think that's been something that's really helped me as well and I'm very grateful for that, for having to do that and for having to learn that skill because I've didn't realise until I started doing it just how much I loved it and how it was like a real beautiful challenge for me.
0: You once said that because you're producing and writing Mm -hmm. your own music and playing your own instrument and being exactly what we were just saying, being kind of self-sufficient, like that in itself is like a tiny Mm -hmm. protest, you know, and I feel like as a band, like, you know, with the name Warpaint and, you know, almost 20 years that you guys have been together, right? I look at Warpane and I feel empowered that there is a band like that out there, do you know. And then I look at like that kind of like Rock's future is female. And then I look at a band like I saw the Linda Lindas over the weekend. And I was like, oh my God, you know, that lineage is just like, it's there, it's so amazing. How do you feel about being in this band and being this kind of beacon for all these other young women? Getting into bands out there.
1: I mean, you could only really hope that that's the case, but but I, I I wouldn't I I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that that's like an absolute truth. I think that's that's hopefully true for some musicians who were just exposed to our band when they were at the age where that representation was was vital, or that that visibility was something that really changed the course. The same way Hanson did for me, <laughs> for example, you know. <laughs> But um, (laughs) it's the cycle of life, I guess. It's just all you can really hope for is that you make an impact in some way as a human being living in this world but also as a collective in the world of music to be able to leave something behind and hopefully change things for the better or start a conversation. Even if someone hates your band and starts a band out of spite
0: to challenge you, that's great. That's something that wouldn't have happened if you weren't existing in that musical landscape. I was thinking about something you said about the drumming process, you know, it's like, how has your drumming changed in Warpaint all these years? Because like you started out with tool and primers and really into like technique and drumming style. And uh, there's definitely been a move. Like how do you feel you've kind of evolved with your sound and how you drum? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think my taste has just changed so much over time. Before I was singularly focused drummer and I just wanted to do certain things and play certain kinds of music when I was a teenager, kind of lean into my strengths in that way. And I think as I get older and work the music that I enjoy playing and the records that I really enjoy playing on, those experiences have taught me how to lay back, where to lay back and what is actually needed in a song and what actually benefits the song, how to provide someone with the support that they need to finish their music. And sometimes that is just the last thing that's recorded is a drum part or it's an opinion or it's just a good energy in the studio or whatever that is. I think that's just as important as having technique and, and all those things. So I think I'm really lucky that I had that early interest in technique and technical ability and, you know, working on that was a huge goal of mine. And then you can kind of relax a little bit as you get older and and you get into the studio and not everyone wants you to do the 46 and 2 solo or, Mm. you know, not everyone wants you to shred all the time because someone else is shredding. It's their turn Mm. to shred. Mm. Or the song is delicate and it's not really about that at all instrumentally. And I think what's more satisfying to me musically these days is just coming into a room and and asking the question where I fit in. Mm. Where do I fit in? What can I contribute What part of myself can I leave in this situation that will nourish the song or help it grow or even finish it or whatever it is? And I think hopefully in my best moments plays into how I want to move through the world and how I want to live. Mm. And that's just like, where can I help? How can I help? But also how can I make this situation better? That's a question that I often ask myself and I I try my best. Sometimes it's, you know, all you're doing is trying, but you're also failing (laughs) I think just having that intention going into every experience, whether it's musical or personal, I think is, that's a good guiding light for me.
0: listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Stella Musgawa from Warpaint. This episode was produced by me, Celine Tioblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari, with additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.